The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. This is the Provoke Podcast. It's Arun Sulaman um, in isolation here in Hong Kong, uh, like like many of us around the world. Uh, and I'm joined uh, from Japan by our Asia Pacific correspondent, David Blecken. David, how are you? Are you also working in isolation? Uh, I am, but uh, but this is not such a new thing for me. Um, yeah. But I think for a lot of people here. It, it is a very new thing. Um, mm. So yeah, Japan has uh, has had to uh, radically change uh, the way people are working. Um, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting one because I would imagine Japan is a country where people go to work, they go to offices. Um, it's a very yes. I mean, being being present uh, in the office is uh, is a really important part of life in Japan. Um, sometimes too much importance is placed on that. Mm. Um, so I think for, for a lot of companies and, and employees themselves, um, not actually going into work has been, not, not actually going to the workplace has been quite a shock. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, obviously we are, uh, if you haven't already gathered, uh, we are talking about the, uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus uh, crisis, which is, is, has really gripped the globe. David, you wrote um, two features about this for us, uh, both really interesting stories. Although when you wrote them, you were very much focused on events in Asia. It seems like that seems like a more innocent time. Uh, your your last uh, or part two of your kind of series was on the 28th of February. Since then, of course, um, this crisis has really escalated globally, um, you know, in terms of what we're seeing around the world in particular. And, places like Italy and uh, the UK and the US. Um, now, I've worked from home for a decade now, so it's nothing new for me. But do you think this will change workplace practices in Japan, for example, uh, in the, you know, for, the, for the long run? Uh, I think it could do, and, and people, do, people have um, suggested that. Um, mm. I think uh, there was already um, a trend towards freeing people up uh, to work remotely here, but it was only just getting started really. Um, so we've seen a bit of that in the last year or so. Um, but I think with this, uh, you know, with, with the onset of this virus, um, it's just speeded everything up. Um, so, I think it's it's still uh, caught a lot of companies unawares. Um, mm. So some companies uh, have been much better prepared to deal with this uh, disruption to the workforce than others. Mm. Um, yeah. But uh, but people have speculated that you know if if there's one good thing to come out of this uh, this whole business, uh, it could be that um, Japanese com- or companies in Japan adopt. A more flexible way of working you know for the longer term yeah by the way i should say when i said we are both working in isolation we're not in quarantine uh, <laughs> thankfully so, not not, yeah, not thankfully yet not, <laughs> not yet anyway um the, the the second part of your story looks at how corporates in this region have been handling it i think the lessons frankly are universal because 
um, since you wrote it, what we've seen is these lessons being applied globally. And actually, um, we've just been talking about the change required in terms of working from home uh, in, in, in some societies, for example, where it's, it's uh, not that common. In particular, your story revolves around, I think, the workplace disruption um, and the communications that's required to manage that workplace disruption. Um, how well do you think companies are handling this particular challenge uh, in this region at least? Um, I think, uh, I mean, the, the general feeling has been uh, that companies are, are doing quite well. Um, I think their challenge has been much the same as the challenge that governments have faced uh, in that they, they've had to try and catch up um, with the virus, with, with the spread of the virus, uh, mm. and to try to get ahead of the situation. Uh, I think, you know, for, for many companies, they were, they were behind and perhaps now they're more on top of it in terms of the way they communicate. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think there's been so much noise out there um, around, you know, around this whole disease. Um, yeah. There's been a lot of misinformation. So I think the yeah. challenge that companies have had has been, you know, to, to begin with, has been just cutting through that noise and determining what's really important uh, and trying to focus on on the facts rather than just the, uh, you know, all the speculation around it. Yeah, and the panic. The um, panic, yeah. yeah. Because and people course, are panicked, right? And they will look to their companies for advice and guidance. Yes, I mean, I think that's, you know, part of the job of uh, internal communications or whoever is managing the communications um, in a company um, is to try to uh, reduce that that level of panic um, mm. to try to obviously to try to reassure their staff um, and you know they almost have a a civic duty in a way to uh, to um, discourage their staff from uh, spreading uh, information that might that might not be accurate um, mm. I think there's obviously that's you know been a big factor in all the all the confusion um people have been very quick to to jump on uh rumors um mm. gossip and and just spread it on social media mm. um which is obviously very unhelpful to society at large um and you know and within a company so mm. and and then there are tactical concerns as well right you, you know for example you write that one of the issues is is just ensuring that there's a single source of information, figuring out which are the right channels on which to communicate with staff. I mean, these are things that seem less yeah. important, important, but actually almost become more important in some, in some, in, in some ways. They do. And um, I think we've seen, you know, in spite of all the different platforms that companies have at their disposal, um, you know, the good old fashioned email platform has probably mm. Uh, been seen as the most useful in this context it's just because everyone checks their email um, mm. you know, that's uh, that seems to have been the 
um, the most effective way to reach people. Yeah. Um, and I think companies have, they've uh, had to work out um, what the right frequency is to deliver information. Um, you know, so I think um, at the, in the early stages, where, as I said, companies were struggling to, uh, to keep up, um, there was a feeling that information had to be delivered, you know, almost up to the minute. Um, mm. But I think, you know, as, as people have got more on top of the situation, um, there's a realisation that too much information is, is unhelpful. Um, and, mm. you know, more like a, a weekly or um, twice weekly uh, update on the situation is is probably more helpful to people yeah yeah i mean it's 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 difficult let's let's not underestimate the the scale of the challenge i think facing um corporate communicators at this point when it comes to the internal challenge but the other thing i think that has developed perhaps since your story is the external communications challenge um and, and you do touch on it but i feel like that has become um a bigger challenge as well, you know, in terms of how companies are uh, reassuring, for example, customers about their products, um, how they're talking to the market about supply chain, you know, earnings guidance is going to become increasingly mm. important. And then, of course, that doesn't mention all of the, the financial carnage we've seen in the stock markets this week and, and how companies have to, to factor that into their um, into their communications as well. What was the sense you got in terms of how difficult companies are finding to talk about this kind of stuff externally? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, external communications will definitely um, rise in importance uh, as companies start to really feel the impact of the virus on their business, um, mm. which, they're, which, you know, most companies are sure to do. Um, so I think the challenge you know, again, they, they just as um, with internal communications, uh, striking the right tone uh, is not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, the companies, they're in a difficult position because they, there's a feeling that they can't remain silent on the issue, um, but also they want, um, they want daily operations to continue as much as possible. They can't allow the, mm -hmm. you know, the virus to dominate everything. Yeah. So it's a it's a question of um, balancing, you know, normal, normal, you know, business as usual, with uh, with being engaged with what's going on, um, mm. and of course um, they can't. They they have to be careful um, not to appear political in any way, not mm. to, um, yeah, you know, of course uh, there are been issues with uh, between countries you know that mm. there's, there's been some tension and um, since since the virus began um companies uh, definitely have to stay out of all that um but um they and of course they need to they need to help where they can uh, you know mm. companies are um trying to um trying to you know some some companies have innovative services that can help in this context mm -hmm. um and it's obviously it pays for them to talk about this but then they can't be seen to to be capitalizing 
on this mm. crisis. So again, yeah. anything they talk about in terms of innovation, uh, they have to do it in a very sensitive way. Yeah, they can't look opportunistic. Um, no. And I'm already seeing, I'm sure you are as well, I'm seeing a lot of stuff out there that looks opportunistic. I mean, as, as, you know, as journalists, I've, I think, I'm not sure if you're also seeing this kind of the deluge of emails coming in now. Um, expert commentators on COVID-19. I mean, I think that's okay. But then I've seen some agencies launching practices focused on it. I suppose that does make sense to a certain extent, although you, you do wonder, you know, you kind of have to balance it. I think with, you don't want to look like you're ambulance chasing. Um, exactly. Literally yeah. in, in, in some cases. Um, and I mean, you know, there's, I've, I'm seeing a, a lot of content out there uh which just seems designed to get clicks because of of the coronavirus situation right and i think that's i mean well that's one of the big problems here you know you talk about the panic and a lot of it is being stoked by um well frankly i think quite irresponsible media reporting um yes i mean that was something that um that that other people had mentioned um that the you know, if you think about it um, logically, obviously it's in the it's in the media's interest to, uh, ha, you know, to to maintain uh, a feeling of tension, um, mm. so that people people want to follow the story, they feel compelled to follow a story. Um, but I think the feeling has been that <clears throat> a lot of coverage has lacked uh, context. So mm. um, reporting on the rise in, you know, in cases and in deaths. Um, mm. Obviously, it puts people on edge. Um, but there's not there's not necessarily the context to balance all that out. So yeah, um, yeah, I think that has been that's true. They don't they don't often tell you how many have recovered. Yeah, I mean, even there's, here there's in Hong often, Kong, right? There's a yeah. hundred. I mean, I think there's a hundred twenty odd cases here. It's slowed down a lot, but I think something like half of them have recovered. So. Um, yeah, finding that information is quite hard. It's not in the the main chart that's published. No, no, it isn't. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that's been that's been a challenge that you know an additional challenge that um, people in the communications business have had to deal with. Um, well, yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. I mean. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of them are dealing with it well, but then I, I, I see, for example, today I just saw two, two examples of, of companies, agencies talking about their, their, you know, their work from home policies and, and how right. well those are going. And I, I don't know. I just think maybe there's some utility to that, but I do feel it's a little bit opportunistic. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. I see. Yeah, I see a lot of posts and advice on working from home. I don't know. I've worked from home for 10 years. I have zero advice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I think it's, it's just as we see with, with any crisis. I mean, for example, um, when we, uh, uh, I suppose last year, the last two years, um, the issue of overwork in, um, in agencies, uh, became an, you know, that became a big topic. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, we did see quite a lot of companies responding 
you know, opportunistically to that and talking about various measures that they had in place, which if you broke it down, um, mm -hmm. there wasn't always a great deal of substance to those. Um, it was just a chance for them to, you know, to draw attention to themselves. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think that's, that's probably what's happening here as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if we, um, you know, there are some uh, positive examples. Um, I mean, one is um, Zoom. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, we've seen with remote working, we've seen uh, Zoom's business um, strengthen. Uh, it doubled, yeah. I, I think it's doubled its market value uh, in the last three months. Well, um, yeah. We're on so Zoom right now, by the way. Yep, we are, we are. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's um, it's benefiting from a general rise in remote working anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know, this is happening organically, um, and there hasn't been any noticeable effort to sort of tout the service, um, you yeah. know, during this crisis. Yeah. So I think the and the, the founder himself comes across as very very humble, you know. So I think that that's an example of. Um, how to behave uh, at a time mm. like this just sort yeah. of provide a useful service but don't shout about it i think cisco has is giving away a month free for its webex as well um yeah you're right but and, and those platforms i think they have something to say if, if they if zoom wants to come out and say okay here are five things that that will really help you um in terms of video conferencing i kind of think i i kind of think that's worthwhile um yeah but there's a lot of stuff in my inbox that yeah, seems uh, yes less less relevant. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the challenges facing governments uh, and governmental organisations uh, because mm -hmm. I feel like whilst the corporate response is is reasonably uniform around the world, um, the governmental response is anything but. Uh, mm. was, this was detailed in your first story. We we had uh, the example of Singapore, which I think, um, as, as 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 many of us would expect, acted decisively and sen sensitively, and has done a good job. Um, and I think you know, countries in Asia in general have done a pretty good job. Even um, even Hong Kong, which I would say is despite its government. Um, but I think because you have a population here that's quite used to this kind of thing and understands social distancing and all of those yeah. things, and, and also remembers SARS. Um, but if you look at the response in the US and the UK, even Italy until until recently, it seems quite different. Yeah, so I think um, the quality of communications um, is reflective of the overall quality of response and that countries have had the threat of the virus. Um, so I think some countries were just generally better prepared to deal with this sort of thing than others. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned uh, Singapore and Hong Kong, obviously these are, you know, small um, places with, with small populations and they're um, familiar with this sort of issue. Um, then, you know, if we look at, um, if we look at Japan, for instance, um, people have criticised the government's response here. Um, they've, they've seen it as uh, as rushed. Um, people are also sceptical of the numbers that are being presented. Um, so, I th and that 
also um, points to the importance of pre-existing trust. So uh, Singapore has, you know, people are generally um, trusting in what the government says. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, that's been really important in, um, it, I suppose, in the effectiveness of the, the government's uh, communications efforts. I mean, here in Japan, um, you know, people are still sceptical. I think the feeling um, is that the government has improved, um, you know, since all this began. It's gone from being one step behind all the time to being a bit more proactive uh, in the way that it communicates. So, um, you know, so there are signs that um, it is possible to catch up. Um, but, um, but yes, I mean, I think every, every country seems to um, be at a different, a different level, um, you know, in the way that, um, in the way that governments are communicating with the, with the population. I think those countries that have, that have dealt with SARS in the past, um, you know, that they um, have been able to take on board some of those lessons. Um, and so they're, you know, issuing regular public statements, um, maps that chart the spread of the disease, this sort of thing, which, um, you know, the, these are helpful measures. Yeah, yeah, we have a map here in Hong Kong. I mean, it is, it is you're right. I think it, it, a lot of it is reflective, not just of of the kind of the government's approach to communications, but also reflective of how how much the people trust the communication and also just how, how the people in a particular country behave in general. I mean, you look at the difference in the US where it's a very different healthcare system. I think there's a very different attitude towards uh, social distancing. And of course, uh, a very different approach to um, communication in the shape of that country's president uh and you can't you really can't think of a more i don't know it's almost like a polar opposite in many respects to yeah. what we've seen in um in a country like china for example um right the problem i guess is that this kind of crisis requires it doesn't respect borders and we kind of need a good response everywhere. Yes, yes. And I think mentioning borders, um, I mean, there's a sense that communications around um, border closures and quarantines um, mm. haven't been quite as well thought out mm. as perhaps the communications within the country. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's still some confusion um, and also resentment around the closure of borders. Um, I mean, we've seen uh, there's a obviously there's a uh, there are, you know perennial tensions between Japan and Korea, um, but we've yeah. seen um, you know a spat uh, come up as a result of um, Japan insisting on quarantine of people coming in from Korea. You know, so uh, then there was, um, you know, to, the response was to uh, sort of close the border to uh, to, to Japanese travellers. So, you know, um, this sort of um, which which the the World Health Organization has uh, has basically condemned as uh, you know just tit for tat uh, 
right which isn't, isn't anyone so yeah yeah it's interesting because I, I know here it's a, it's been a huge issue because people in hong kong wanted the border closed uh, with china from very early on i mean singapore did it straight away hong kong hong kong never did it actually and, and that is still a sore point here it's one of the reasons the schools i think are still shut because there's, there's a lot of mainland students at, at schools here um the border was was contained i actually think that the chinese authorities have done a, a better job of preventing their own people from traveling um and and the the point you make on trust i think was, is is really critical um i've again seen that firsthand here people don't trust uh, either the chinese government or the hong kong government or even uh, the world health organization um here in hong kong <laughs> And really, they, they, you know, their, their trusted sources of information are um, the, the kind of local experts that emerged during SARS. So the, uh, the relevant departments at the universities, um, the experts from the healthcare sector, um, the, uh, you know, the, these have kind of emerged as, as the people that are trusted. And I think that's been really interesting as well, because um, I do think in, in other countries, Maybe there isn't sometimes enough skepticism um, right. about uh, governmental and communications, and and even and even yes, even communications from from the World Health Organization. Um, where does the where does the mistrust of the World Health Organization stem from? Uh, it's seen as a here in Hong Kong. It's seen as an as an organization that is um, rather too close to Beijing um for right for, for for many of the people here to 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 take it um to take it very seriously i think uh and and you know with good reason i think a lot of the funding for the world health organization does come from from china and and right you can certainly forgive um the organization for for being very sympathetic to beijing and I, i'm not even sure that's a bad approach necessarily um, but I think it does raise some legitimate uh, concerns about um, who's messaging. I mean, I do think who in the early days of the crisis did downplay it too much. Um, right. I think they have mm. followed Beijing's line uh, a little bit too faithfully in, in some some cases, um, and you know they yeah. still they still won't call this a pandemic. Um, Right. Is, I mean, the, the word, it's, be, it's become closer to being called a pandemic, but yeah, still yeah, not quite there. It's closer, but I think all of us in the event business are aware that um, for insurance reasons, it would not be unwelcome if it was classed a pandemic. Um, right. And on that note, let's talk about the Olympics. Yeah, um, so... Because um, that's the big one yeah. here, really. And uh, I mean, well, you tell me, where are we at? And, and, and do you think, I mean, I'm not going to ask you whether you think it will happen. I don't think anyone can answer that question. <laughs> How, um, what's the, what is the conversation right now around uh, the status of the Olympics? Yeah, um, I mean, there are, I think there have been mixed messages over the future of Tokyo 2020. Um, I think it, it all started really when um, Richard Pound from the, um, the IOC um, speculated on the cancellation uh, in an interview. Um, I think it was with AP. Um, so that there was there was a the issue of it 
or the idea of it being cancelled um, was actually aired mm. publicly then. And I think that's when when doubts really started to, you know, to seriously arise. Um, you know, um, I mean, the Olympic Committee's official line uh, has been that, you know, cancelling it really hasn't been considered and um, that it that it really i mean it hasn't been thought of as an option um but um you know i think that's what they want to say publicly um but yeah. i mean of course cancelling it is an option um nobody knows um where things are going to to be with the coronavirus um you know when it comes to uh to july uh-huh. so um i think people are very very nervous you know obviously sponsors are very nervous um anyone who uh and i mean there are just so many different bodies connected to it um uh-huh. you know it, it's quite a nerve-wracking time yeah there's a huge amount of tv money at stake of course huge amount of sponsorship money um what would the impact be though uh on the on, on japan on the japanese economy I mean, people have said that um, I think if if the Olympics were to be cancelled, um, Japan's GDP would fall by one point four percent. Wow. Um, okay. So you know, so there are serious um, economic implications, obviously. Um, yeah. But I mean, not only that, but the Olympics. Um, I mean, it's just been seen as um, such an opportunity for Japan to um i suppose to strengthen its position um globally um you know it's it's a great uh marketing opportunity for the country um as a whole so i mean uh this would just be the ultimate letdown yeah an implication sorry yeah yeah and implications for denso as well right which is kind of the the primary agency for the for the japanese olympics for the tokyo olympics yes so we've seen dentsu's share price uh fall um which can be directly linked to uh you know to uncertainty um Mm. as to whether the event's going to go ahead um Mm. i mean dentsu uh has a huge part in the olympics Mm. um you know it was it was uh i mean it was a key reason um for japan to actually uh, come to host you know to, to be granted um hosting rights uh-huh. to begin with so um so yeah um i mean yeah. I, I suppose um people are just considering what um i i, I think really uh, to be honest people are just hoping for the best there's not really much else uh, they can do at this stage no i i think you're <laughs> right being optimistic yeah, yeah. There's, there's just not a lot of control that can be exerted on this situation um no and i guess we're just now in the realms of contingency planning i mean we've seen so many events uh dropping in the us in the uk in europe i mean obviously in asia that that already happened i think um i mean if we get to a point where the olympics is cancelled then it's it's not just a problem for Japan, it's a problem for the world because it will mean that lots of things are not going to happen. Um, yeah. And, you know, that will have serious implications. 
so that's where we are i guess i mean obviously we, we hope for the best um uh but you know it's, it's a it's an ongoing situation and and certainly the, the communications um elements at least are are proving to be quite fascinating um so thank you very much david uh for your time and and for your for your reporting on this um we'll we'll get you back on on the podcast soon great thank you you've been listening to the provoke podcast brought to you by provoke media and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketers